All right, if you would turn with me in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. We're going to read more than one verse today. Aren't you excited? We're going to read three. So this is very exciting. Um, we're actually taking a brief aside, but still in relationship to this concept of blessing. I think it's important that we talk about this. I will, I will uh, sort of tell you in advance, um, this is going to be addressing an issue that we're all facing in the next few weeks in terms of what our, our society is facing. Uh, this is not a political sermon. Uh, that's not my intention whatsoever. Instead, I, I just simply want to address the issue that we all have been considering, all have been facing, all have been praying about. And I'm hoping to do that from the perspective of what does God's Word say? That's all I want to do. Um, so with that being said, I, I hope that you uh, will be patient and have ears to hear as we, as we do that. But at the same time, ultimately tie that to this concept of blessing. God's way of blessing is different than the world's way. There's a, a fine distinction between these two things. The world says the rich man is blessed. Christ says the poor man is blessed. You know, the world says the proud man will get his way in this world. Christ says the humble will inherit the earth. Uh, in every possible way, Christ turns these things upside down. So I, I want you to hear that with that perspective, knowing that it's going to be different than what you hear in the world. So with that being said, um, let's read together from Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to give us the mind of Christ in every aspect of our calling not just within our homes, not just within our church, but also within society as a whole. We pray, Father, you would help us to think as citizens of a dual kingdom, that we would think your holy thoughts, that we would live in your holy manner, and that we would long for your kingdom to come. Lord, help us to think through these kingdom issues even this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for my 40th birthday, my wife bought me a puzzle that had caught my eye in a novelty store a few months prior. It's a, it's a puzzle of a very famous 16th century painting of the construction of the Tower of Babel. And I was very glad to receive the gift until I realized how big it really was. So it came in a box, not of extraordinary size whatsoever, Nevertheless, it was broken up into 5,000 pieces. And when it's put together, it would measure over 5 feet wide by 3.5 feet tall. In other words, it's bigger than your average kitchen table. So I don't even know how you would put the thing together. I don't have a table big enough to, to put it together. Well, in six months, I'll be 50 years old. Never, needless to say, that puzzle box is still sitting in my closet after 10 years. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't attempt to put it together. I did. I tried. Uh, just finding the end pieces and putting them together took more than a day, and then it took almost a week just to sort the dumb things into the various colors. So by the time the second week rolled around, I was just beginning to put in the first pieces inside of the puzzle. 
And then it realized upon, I realized that there are 500 pieces, all the exact same shape and all the exact same color. And there's really no way to distinguish them. And seemingly none of them seem to fit. So after two weeks, I threw in the towel. And it's been sitting in my closet ever since. Now, don't think for a minute that I didn't perceive the irony in this matter. Uh, you would think that with my theological training that I would know better than to try to construct the Tower of Babel. It ended in the same way with confusion and abandonment. It's the same way. Now, of course, when we think about the Tower of Babel, we're, we, we really know, I think most of us know, that it wasn't originally constructed to actually reach heaven physically speaking, like a ladder that just goes up and up and up. They didn't have the, the materials or the know-how uh, the know -how to, to build some sort of skyscraping tower that would go that high up into the air. But rather in Genesis chapter 11 when Moses is describing this tower unto heaven, he, he means figuratively that it would reach heaven or at least heaven's blessings apart from God's law. That they were doing it through their own works rather than through God and through His will. They sought to make a name for themselves, seeking a blessing for themselves, but apart from God's law. And although God put an end to this great collaborative effort in, in, a, in an instant, if you will, uh, we'll, we find that all throughout history, different groups gathered throughout the world have, have still continued to build this same type of tower whether it's a ziggurat, a pyramid, or some other structure, you can go anywhere in the world, you'll, you'll find these same types of buildings that are meant to be constructed to get the blessing of heaven, but apart from the one true God, through some false worship. They would have their own sacrifices, blood sacrifices. They would still have their own religious rituals and, and all the above, but, but God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, is left out of the equation. You see, that's, that's sort of the point behind all this. It's in contrast to these pagan works that God calls Abraham and gives him grace. All the same blessings that the pagans were seeking, apart from God, God willingly and freely gives it to Abraham. He gives him the promise of, of a name. He says, I'll make your name great. They were looking to make their names great. Abraham is given a name freely. The same way, Abraham was promised to be blessed, and then his children would be blessed for generation after generation, that he would receive this great inheritance, all the things that most of us want. God wanted to give to him freely. So in our text this morning, as we're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, I purposely have juxtaposed, if you will, two different passages that, that address the same issue. They're both looking for a blessing. They're looking for a heavenly blessing, if you will, but but in a vastly different manner. In the first passage that we read, which is in Leviticus chapter 20, uh, the, the Lord is warning God's people from walking in the ways of the Canaanites. He's, he's taking, or taking their particular customs and their values and their worldview, if you will, particularly in the, in the arrangement of child sacrifice. In order to obtain a blessing for themselves and even for their families, they were willing to sacrifice their firstborn son, literally putting him in the fire. So there'd be this statue that is at least life-size, if not much larger, a bronze statue that would have his arms held out like this and that would be superheated. So it's a hollow statue, be heated from underneath. And then those who sought to worship him would literally put their baby in its arms. And 
would burn it to death so that they could get a blessing from that God for themselves and for their children, for future generations, that their land would be healed, all those things. This is what they were seeking to do. Now, the only how they could do that, no sane parent could do that generally, but in this case, what would happen is the priest would start beating on drums and cymbals so loud that you couldn't even hear the kid crying. And it was a sort of a frenzy type of thing, and you were in a religious ritual of some kind. And as a result, many children were killed for the sake of blessing, you see. Future blessings. Now, in, in contrast to that, very painful and chaotic scene we find in Luke chapter 18, parents again are seeking a blessing. But this time, it's a very peaceful and hopeful scene. They're bringing, it says, literally, Luke says in difference from Matthew, they're bringing their infants, their little ones, to Christ that he would bless them. In addition to themselves, that next generation, all of them would receive that same blessing. And so Matthew tells us that he purposely blesses them and prays over them and and says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So in line with God's promise to Abraham, these ones are seeking that same blessing again for their little ones. There's, there's a dramatic difference between the way that the world thinks and the way that Christ thinks about the same issues. Again, it's, it's upside down in, in just about every way. There's a, a false way, but there's a true path that's laid out for us in Scripture. There's, a, there's a, a way that seems right, but in the end it only leads to death, we're told in Proverbs. There's a big difference between Christ's way and the way of the world. Even in the understanding of what is the good life. What is good? What is a blessing? Uh, the, the world has a different definition of that altogether. And it's, it's precisely because the pagans reject the Lord of creation that they lose any sense of value of humanity. There's no sanctity to life at all. I mean, if you think about it, if God is not acknowledged as the ruler over men, men themselves become disposable. There's no value. It's only God's law that forbids us from shedding the blood of another human based upon the image of God being in that human. Apart from that, there's nothing to hinder us from taking the life of another person because there's no value to it. You see that we don't distinguish any difference between those two things. Unlike the beast of the earth, though, in Genesis, whom man is, is told that they can freely kill and eat at their pleasure, when it comes to human beings, there's this explicit command not to do this with men, not to shed the blood of man, because he bears the very image of God. It's only in very limited circumstances, in extraordinary uh, measures, that God would ever allow a person to take the life of another man on purpose. Certainly we think of uh, the times of, of, of execution in, in terms of uh, capital punishment for someone who's taken the life of another man. That's, that's what explicitly is told to us in Genesis in, uh, in the early chapters. And in the same manner, uh, that same authority is given to the government through the, the form of the military as well as the police to take the life of a person who is seeking to take the lives of others. But under normal circumstances, ordinary people never have the right to shed the blood of another human, ever. It's very rare. We see one example, again, in Exodus chapter 22, of a man who kills another man who has broken into his house in the middle of the night and is trying to steal from him, but yet has put his whole life and his family in danger. And as a result, 
It says if it happens in the middle of the night and he takes that man's life, he's not to be held responsible. He's not guilty for that because he's doing it out of self-defense, if you will. But thankfully, I mean, most of us will never be put in that position. Most of us will never, ever have to take the blood of another human being. We won't have to do that. It's not normal. Those are extraordinary circumstances. Now, now where am I going with this? Well, as you know, with the upcoming election, the upcoming proposals that we're going to be considering uh, in a few weeks, one of them, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, and I'm not going to tell you exactly how to vote, I'm not going to uh, break all these things down, but one of them, Proposition 3, if passed, will give almost unlimited authority to individuals to shed the blood of a human being at any stage of pregnancy, any stage. I encourage you to go read it on your own. I'm not going to get into it this day, but, but I want you to consider what this proposition is actually doing. Because this is an issue that we all have to face, we all have to consider, I, I, I want us to at least consider what God has to say about it. And, and, and here's why I wanted to do this. When I was in college, um, I had a drastically different view of abortion than I do today. When I was a young man, I had professed faith in Christ for a year, and I remember having conversations with a number of people, and my view was simply this, I don't care what other people do, I wouldn't do it, but that's up to them, it doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want. That was my view. And it was interesting, because I, I think about it now, I can't ever remember a pastor when I was a young man who ever talked about this issue, ever preached about it, ever discussed it, never even had a Sunday school class on it, and I thought, well, that's, that's a shame, because this is an issue that we all have to consider. We all have to face. How could we not talk about this? In fact, uh, just over the last few months, I've had a few people ask me, what is my, how do I explain this to other people? And I'm always, uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, you, and I forget that people haven't had the same type of time in God's Word as, as I have. They haven't had the same training ethically as I have. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that you didn't go, especially the young people in our church, don't, don't go off from here and having no idea what the Scripture says about these things. Um, so that, that, that's my intention this morning, just to say, what does the Scripture say? I'm not going to give you what men say. I'm going to give you what the Scripture says. And, and I'll tell you flat out from the very beginning, you're not going to find a command anywhere in Scripture that says, thou shalt not have an abortion, right? You're not going to see that. And, and the reason for that is because the Word didn't exist back then. Um, there were different forms of people attempting to have an abortion even, even before the, the, the passages that I'm going to read to you this morning. But that word was not coined back then, would not have used it. What, the, what Moses and anyone of his age would have referred to as any aspect of infanticide. They're killing infants. That's how they would have seen it. They wouldn't have called it an abortion. But more than that, even, you'll find throughout Scripture, you don't see Israelite women seeking to... Um, to end their own pregnancies for this reason primarily, because they saw children as a blessing. In fact, they saw it as a shame not to be able to have kids. And so they felt like, why would I do this? But on the other hand, though, as, as I mentioned already, there were plenty of men and women in Israel who sought to give their children over to false gods because they felt like they were getting a blessing somehow from this. You wouldn't kill your child for no reason. Their reason was to get a blessing, you see. And so, uh, with that being said, like I said, I, I've, I've had people ask us, um, just this week I had someone ask if we would put uh, signs in our yard stating our view of Proposition 3. I've had people ask me if I was going to write a, a personal letter, uh, as some of the Catholic bishops have done, and I've asked if we're going to have a Sunday school class. Now, honestly, I thought the best way to talk about this would simply be to, to talk about it in, in, in light of what God's Word says in a sermon. Uh, 
After all, I have a captive audience for a very brief time. But even with that, I'd say this. Um, all I want you to do is consider what I'm saying. I promise you I'm not looking to offend anyone. I'm not looking to cause controversial statements. I just want to say, have you ever heard of these arguments from Scripture to help you understand the sanctity of life? That's where I'm going with this this morning. So I want to help shore up that foundation. And to do that, I have three questions that I want to ask. And uh, I think they're good questions um, that I'll, I'm going to seek to try to answer only from God's Word, not from the changing opinions of men or of science, but only from God's Word. Here are those questions. Number one, when is the new life that is being formed in the womb, when is that considered to be a person? That's the question that most people have been asking for the last number of decades. Number two, at what point can the life of another be taken without culpability? In other words, at one point, can you take a life and not feel any guilt and not be held accountable for it? And finally, number three, what authority does the law of God have over unbelievers and our society as a whole regarding this matter and many others? What authority does the law of God have over unbelievers? We know it has authority over us, but what does that mean for other people? So let's start with number one. When is the new life that is being formed in the womb actually considered to be a person? As you know, the Supreme Court back in 1973 in Roe v. Wade uh, had, had, had stated that it's, it's only the third trimester of a woman's pregnancy in which a person gains legal status before the law. So set at 28 weeks in 1973 was what they considered a standard of viability. They were considered to be some sort of person, regardless of how they were given rights, they were defined at that point as a fetus that can survive outside of the womb on their own. All right, so that, that was sort of the standard. But strangely enough, that was 73. Later on in 1992, about two decades later, the, the Supreme Court challenged that time requirement from 28 weeks down to 24 weeks. So now all of a sudden children who didn't have rights might have rights according to the laws of the particular state and what happened. Um, and, and the reason why that changed is simply because of uh, developments in medicine that allowed a preborn child to be uh, to, to 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 remain alive outside of the womb, but even this day there are there have been children even as young as twenty one weeks that still have survived outside the womb. So if you're going to base any aspect of personhood on viability, that standard's always changing. You can't base a person on how many weeks they can survive outside the womb. Not not only that, but just even the premise itself is kind of false. Because no child can survive outside of the womb if you leave them by themselves for a couple days. They're going to die. They're all helpless creatures no matter how big they are. And I was a big baby. I still am. But a child cannot live outside of the womb on its own. So even I just I don't understand how that's even being used as a standard. But most states in, our, in our, the United States, they use basically from the time of the, of the woman's last menstrual cycle. And each state has a different determination for that. Again, based upon what they would consider personhood. Nine states in our country officially set personhood, if you will, at 22 weeks. One state has it at 20 weeks, two states have it at 15 weeks, and one has it at only six weeks, whereas many others will say it's at the point of implantation in, in the wall. Right. So each state has a different view of what a person is. So how are you going to determine whether or not this person is a person? If every person comes to a different realization of what that means. It's, it's, not, it's not a good solution because it's basically just dependent upon what I think or what you think or what your doctor thinks. It just doesn't seem like it's, it's a fair solution whatsoever. 
In, in Psalm 139, um, probably sort of the classic passage in Scripture to refer to this, verses 13 through 16, the psalmist actually uses the Hebrew word for embryo to describe how God formed his inward parts and knitted him together in his mother's womb. He described how God saw his unformed substance in the secret place. In other words, when none of us could see what was going on, even to this day, even with the technology we have, we can't see clearly what's going on. We have some idea what's going on. But God knows. And, and, and the psalmist is taking comfort in the fact that God knows, right? But what I find interesting about this passage is how many times in this passage he continues to refer to that embryo as me. He keeps saying over and over again, my inward parts, you knitted me together. You saw my unformed substance, so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Same way Psalm 51, David says very plainly, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not just conceived some tissue or mass or blob, but conceived me. It wasn't just some fertilized egg that was conceived inside of its mother's womb. It was a person, the anointed one of God. David himself was conceived in sin, is what he's saying, at that very young age. And it was for this exact reason that Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not as a man, not as a teen, not as a boy, not as a child, not as a fetus, but as an embryo. He's conceived at the very youngest of stages. And what do we say in the Apostles' Creed? Right? What, what, do we, what do we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed? That he, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He, not some blob of tissue, but he was conceived. Every church that I know of that's an evangelical church states that very plainly, he was conceived. Not a blob of tissue was conceived, but he was conceived. And, and this view is consistent throughout Scripture. There's, there's really no wavering on this matter. Genesis 25, verse 22, we read that Jacob and Esau say are wrestling together in their mother's wombs. In their mother's womb. Sorry, one woman, Rebecca. The, the Bible explicitly calls them children within the womb, not children outside the womb. Even though your dictionary today will say that you're only a child once you come out of the womb. It calls them children. The same word that's used of a child outside of the womb. It's the same word. In, in the eyes of God, they were children wrestling inside of the womb of their mother. Similarly, Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Two pregnant women get together. You remember these two pregnant women? Very famous women, right? You have one that's really old and one that's really young. And as soon as Elizabeth, this older pregnant woman, hears Mary's greeting, the younger pregnant woman, we're told that her baby leaps within her womb, calls it a baby, and that the baby is leaping, Right? Not a fetus, but a baby that is expressing delight at being in the presence of his cousin who is still in embryonic form. At that moment, it says Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and begins to give praise unto God. But it also says that John himself, this blob of tissue, was filled with the Spirit of God. Because he recognized Christ the embryo. Very clear from Scripture. Life itself begins at conception. That that fertilized egg, that tiny little embryo, granted personhood by God from the very beginning. 
I, I don't see how you can see it any other way. Now, you may have a different view of how you carry out these things. I get that. I'm, I'm not... I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm not telling you what to do. But I, I want you to see what the Scripture says about these things. It's baffling to me that, that people don't admit this truth. It's, very pl- it's as plain as the nose on our face. It's life. And it's a person. We don't need to use language of viability. We just need to use common sense. The Scripture says it very plainly. I mean, the old saying, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck. You know, it's probably a duck. But somehow, in our great wisdom and sophistication this day, we can't quite see that. And even, even It blows my mind that an abortionist can kill a baby in the third trimester and say that's not a person. How is that possible? It looks like a person. It moves like a person. Someone's not telling you the truth. But that leads to the second question. At what point can the life of a person be taken without culpability? At what point can you take the life of another person without sinning, without uh, causing some guilt in that, in that manner? Now we know in, in terms of adults and fully born children at least that no one has the right to ever take the life of another person unless it's granted them by the authority of God in extraordinary circumstances, whether you're, in, again, uh, whether you're an agent or arm of the state or, or whether you're, you're having to take a life out of self-defense. These are extraordinary matters. But according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God's law says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man that is unlawfully, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So even, even just the idea of, of, of abortion, you're shedding the blood of something. Is it not human that you're shedding? It, it, it clearly is. If a child has been conceived in the womb of his mother, it bears the very image of God and therefore has the same right to life that you and I do. Anyone who takes that life unjustly, he says, bears the guilt of murder. Now, I know people don't want to hear that, but it's true. You take the life of a human being, it's considered murder unless you have a just reason for doing so. And that's exactly what we find. A case study. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. Again, very plain passage. People try to make it less plain. Uh, In fact, I have many pastors that are liberal that I know of that will try to explain this passage away to you in many different ways. But here's the scenario. Two men are fighting with one another, if you remember. And for some reason, they strike this woman who's pregnant. And the law says that if if, if the woman... If her child comes out of the womb early because of this, and the child is unhurt, basically, then basically the, the, the man is fine, but it, it doesn't have any other consequences other than that. But it says, but if, if there's harm in some way, it says that man would have to pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Why? Because it's treating that baby as a person. Life for life. Now again, I'll tell you, liberal pastors and, and others who try to change Scripture to make it say what they want will say, well, they're only referring to the life of the mother. If you hurt her in some way, that's it. But well, then why bring up the fact that she's pregnant? That doesn't make any sense. Just say it's a woman. You hurt the woman, life for life, tooth for tooth, whatever. It specifically says a pregnant woman whose child comes out early because of what you have done. Clearly, he's saying there's culpability here. There's guilt here. 
and even murder. You've taken the life of another person, manslaughter at least. Now, some have tried to say that this form of retribution only applies if the woman gets hurt, but you know that's not the case. I'm, I'm always baffled by people who try to make the Scriptures say what they want it to say. Let's be honest. Let's be humble. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't get it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I read God's Word, and I'm like, oh, that's not what I would do. But that's why I'm wrong. That's why I'm a sinner. That's why I need the Spirit to help me. Because I, I, I'm constantly trying to make God into my own image rather than letting Him make remake me into His image. Again, we don't see any instances of women purposely getting an abortion in the Old Testament. It simply wouldn't have appealed to most women. It's, it's not a common sin, at least, even though I'm sure it did happen in some way or another. But it's interesting. Uh, there are a number of occasions in which there are invading foreigners coming into the land who are purposely killing little children and bashing their heads against the rocks. And then in addition, it says, and they're ripping open pregnant women's bellies to kill their little ones as well. And God says, I will hold them accountable. I will bring my just judgment upon them. Why would he bring that up? Unless there's culpability for killing the child within a womb. Now what about a woman aborting her own child? It's often touted today that a woman has a right over her own body. You've heard it many times. Even if you were to grant that biblically, which I don't think that you can do, you would also have to grant that a woman can sin against her own body as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 makes it very plain. It says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So even if you have rights over your own body, you can still sin against your own body. But, but abortion goes farther than that because you're not just sinning against your own body. You're sinning against another body, another person that's living inside of you. What about the woman who was raped? Uh, this is a question that I've been asked a lot lately, and a lot of the politicians have been asked, and they've been very reluctant to give an answer because they know that nobody wants to hear the answer that they give. But contrary to the inflated numbers that we're told again and again, this isn't a, a normal occurrence. Most women who are raped do not have children. It's a very rare occurrence. Now, that, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It still does. It is quite possible. But the question is, does the woman have the right to abort the child because of what's happened to her. After all, it's not her fault that she got pregnant. And she's going to have to experience a lot of grief in her life if she were to go forward with bearing that child. It's a very good point, very significant point. I don't want to minimize that at all. But I also want to, I want to stress another point. It also wasn't that child's fault. Whose fault was it? Well, if it's rape, then it's the father's fault, Right? You follow my logic here, right? He's still a father. He's had a baby. He's a father now. What does God's law say about the sins of fathers? Have you thought through this one? Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 says very plainly, children shall not be put to death because of the sins of their fathers. They shall not be put to death because of what their fathers have done. Is that child not a child of his father? How could you take the life of the child because of what his father has done? I get it. I, I do. I, I, I would hate to be in the position of the woman who was... I would absolutely hate it. I, I can't even imagine it. I'm, I, 
my mother-in-law, uh, Carol, wanted me to point out something to you that, um, you know, her uh, grandmother, great-grandmother, I forget which one now, um, uh, they believe something similar happened to her when she was 14 years old. Um, she went ahead and carried that baby. And uh, my wife and my daughters and my mother-in-law are here today because she did. They had to go through tremendous grief at that time. Tremendous grief. But I, I tell you, and I, I can say it with wholehearted confidence in the promises of the Lord, that if any of my daughters were raped and had a child, I still would encourage them to keep the baby. Absolutely. In fact, if it were up to me, I would demand that they do. Because it's a life. It's a person. What about the woman who experiences mental anguish because of this pregnancy, specifically if she's a teenage girl? That's a lot to carry. Tremendous amount of burden to place upon a young woman. Do you realize how old Mary was when she was immaculately impregnated? She's about 14. Do you realize how much grief she would have have had to have born when people accused her of being a loose woman? Do you realize that even to this day, unbelievers still say that she's a loose woman and that she had a child out of wedlock, that Christ was not born of a virgin, but rather born of a very filthy young woman? That's what they'll say. And yet God purposely impregnated her and had her go through that type of grief for a much greater purpose. It was actually God's will for her to go through that, that suffering, that turmoil. We simply don't know what God intends to do. We don't know how he's going to use that. Again, I, you know, my family's here today because of a, some young woman who had to go through that type of grief. What about the future suffering of a child? itself, who might grow up unwanted and perhaps unloved? It's another question. It's a good question to ask, I'm, and I'm glad people are asking these questions. But if I were to phrase it to you in a different way, what about the one-year-old who's unloved and unwanted? Do, do, should you kill that child? Why does it change all of a sudden if it's a child within the womb as opposed to outside the womb? Well, none of us would. So, well, he's unloved. Let's kill it. That doesn't make any sense. Again, we have no idea what God intends through the anguish and the suffering of a person or even the suffering of what those children might go through that are born into this world. But you can't forget that, that all of us grew, were born into a suffering world. And I know we'll say, well, man, I don't suffer that much. We, we all are born into a fallen world. We all will experience suffering. And in fact, if we're Christians, we're called to suffering. We're called to follow the way of Christ who, who suffered for our sake. How do we think that in some way, because we're a Christian, we're not going to suffer if, if our own Master, our own Lord suffered in that way? Of course we're called to suffer, and, and many of us will suffer much more than others, and even that's considered a blessing in God's eyes. We haven't got to that part yet in the Beatitudes, but even that's considered a blessing. I know that sounds ridiculous that I'm even saying that, and I think unbelievers would, would absolutely think I'm crazy. But that is what the Scripture teaches. 
But what about the unbeliever who doesn't hold to such things? Are they held to the same requirement, the, the same standard? That's the third question. What authority does the law of God have over unbelievers and society as a whole regarding matters such as these? In other words, can, a, can an unbeliever be legally coerced to keep God's law? Or, on the other hand, can they be sanctioned in some way for not keeping that law? That seems to be the issue of primary concern in a, in a country like ours that, that, that touts itself as a pluralistic society. Again, some Christians would say, well, I would never do such a thing on my own, but I really don't have any right to tell anyone else how to live their life, right? That's sort of the ongoing view of many people, even in the church. Of course, the recurring slogan by the opposite side is, my body, my rights, right? You hear that again and again. Even the language of the upcoming proposal phrases it this way, that the individual has the right to autonomous decision-making in this matter. You know what the word autonomy means? It means I'm a law unto myself. I don't have to abide by any laws of the state, and I don't have to abide by any laws of God. I am a law unto myself. Do we want to promote autonomy in our culture? That's what the proposal is teaching us to do. Then on top of that, we're also reminded again and again and again about this supposed doctrine of the separation of church and state. We're told that again and again and again, it's not in the Constitution, folks. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a Baptist association. It was his personal opinion about something, and it didn't mean what people try to make it mean today. He's just saying they're two different institutions. They have two different purposes. He's not saying that religious people don't have a right to tell unreligious people how to live. He's not saying that at all. The people who keep quoting that statement out of context, not knowing where it comes from, are using it as the co-conspirators would have used it in Psalm 2 when they took counsel against the Lord and against Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We want nothing to do with God's law. We want nothing to do with any authority telling us how to live our life. Still, we have a number of people who will say, you can't legislate what? Morality. You can't, that is the most absurd statement I have ever heard in my life. Every aspect of legislation is legislating morality. Any person who makes a law already has in their mind some idea of what good and bad are. They're trying to stop you from doing what is bad and trying to encourage you to do what is good. That's morality. Every law is an intention of promoting morality. And thus, every Government is seeking in some way to hinder you from doing what's wrong, and they will place sanctions against you if you do. The real question is not whether or not there is a morality to be legislated, but which vision of morality is going to be put into place, and by which type of government. And that's a scary question. Do you want morality to be determined by people who have no concept of what morality is, and by a government who has no inkling of sanctity for human life. Think of it this way. Maybe you saw even this morning, I think it was this morning, last night, uh, Xi Jinping, whatever his name is, the Chinese guy, got rid of his previous president in front of hundreds of people on live TV. Just like that, he's gone. He's probably going to be put to death probably this week. And he's boasting about it, that he has the power and the right to do that because he's the guy, Right? It's also the guy and those kinds of guys that say, okay, well, you just voted for yourself the right to take the life of a child at any stage of pregnancy. I like that, the government says. 
and we're going to make sure that you don't have more than one kid, so we're going to kill all the rest of your kids for you. You don't even have to make that decision. We'll make it for you. Do you want that type of government who has no concept of the sanctity of life? That's the direction that we head in when we vote autonomy, because it's not autonomy. Eventually, it's going to be some sort of other version of the government taking every right away from you that you have. I mean, but here's, here's a better question. In fact, if you think of it from a non-Christian perspective, it, it really is quite fascinating if you ask the question, what gives the government the right to tell me what to do in the first place? Have you ever, you ever even asked that question? What gives the government the right to tell me what to do? I mean, after all, if the government doesn't have that right to enforce morals, to enforce sanctions, then there's really no difference between the government and the rest of us trying to do the same thing. In other words, let me put it this way. If there's no authority, that there's no difference between a state execution and murder. You ever thought of it that way? In other words, if the state seeks to execute someone, why is it not murder? Or, let's put it in a different way. What, what if uh, the state decides to imprison you? How is that not kidnapping? Are they not detaining you against your will? Or even ask it this way, what's the difference between state taxes and stealing? Finally hit a button here. Finally got a reaction. Because the truth of the matter is you know in some cases it is stealing. They're taking your money against your will and they're giving it to someone else just because they decided to. Is that moral? No. What gives them the right to do any of these? What gives the government the right to take a life? What gives the government a right to hold you against your will? What gives you these rights? Well, according to the Declaration of Independence, the same guy that wrote that letter to the Baptist Association, Jefferson, said that the right of the government depends upon the consent of the governed. Sounds good on paper, but in reality, it, it, it too is grossly inadequate to really determine where authority comes from. And after all, what if an individual refuses to give their consent? I don't give my consent. Can't do that. <laughs> you can't take that right away from me. You can't take my money. You can't detain me. You can't do any of these things. And that's where we're at. That's what autonomy is encouraging. Ours. You can't do any of these things to me. Leave me alone, right? That's sort of the, the mindset. So what happens is when you encourage autonomy in society, a whole bunch of other things happen as well that you haven't anticipated. Really, the, the consent of the governed really turns to majority rule, which really turns to mob rule, which really the determiner of morality and righteousness in a country comes down to this, might is right. Whoever has the guns determines morality. And that, is that not where we're at in society? Whoever has the guns determines morality. So let's make sure we take the guns away from those other moral people. Only those who have the right to have the gun can determine the morals for society, and we will make sure that you do what we say. I, I, that's a nightmare. That's a nightmare that we've inherited as a country. We have no concept of morality. It all comes down to what the government tells us is moral based upon whoever has the most money, whoever has the greatest sway upon our legislators. We have to wake up from this lie. That's what it is. The only reason why the government has any right to legislate any aspect of our lives is because God has given them that right. If we deny that fact, that the authority, the right comes from God, we've lost all freedom. We've lost all sense of morality. 
because then the state can determine what is, is moral for itself or even just give it to the people. Let us determine what is moral. The very fact that we're even voting on this, Proposal 3, is basically saying, well, you, you determined what's right. Does that seem right? Let's all vote. Should we kill each other? Yes. Let's give the right to whoever wants it. Let's just, I, I, I want to vote myself the right to kill anyone that I want. I'm an autonomous creature. I can do whatever I want. That's really what we're saying. The only true determinant of morality is the Lord, the moral lawgiver himself. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's simply this. Any country that, that completely turns away from God's law and says you can't even talk about God's law has no sense of morality and also has no right, no authority to do what it does. I, I, don't, know about, I don't want to live in a society that does that. To me, I have to vote my conscience based upon the moral law of God. It has to be brought into every single decision that I make. You cannot check your faith in at the door when you make your ballot. You can't check your faith at the door when you enter your workplace. You can't check your faith at the door when you go to school. You can't do that. It has to be considered from the perspective of heaven. He's told us what his will is. He told us what morality is. We can't ignore that. Our responsibility as we're called to vote upon proposals and platforms, is to be dual citizens of two realms, both as citizens of the heaven as well as citizens of this state, and they have to coincide somehow. We have to consider these things from a biblical perspective. So after all of this, we're taught to pray each day, what? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. How can we pray that? And then say, well, we don't care about his will when it comes to our voting. I want to do what I want to do. I'm not even going to consider what the Scripture says. I'm going to do what I think is right. How is that any different from the book of Judges? Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not considering what God says. Do I really want His name to be hallowed, or do I want His name to be spat upon every single time that someone says, well, you can't bring God's law into this? How can you not? It's His kingdom. His will. That's what we want on earth just as it is in heaven. Listen to these words um, from the Archbishop of the Catholic Church, written back in 1894. 1894, are you ready? And he was talking about uh, an upward trend in, in what we would eventually call abortions here in America. He said this, The abiding interest that we feel in the preservation of the morals of our country constrains us to raise our voice against the daily increasing practice of infanticide, especially before birth. The notoriety that this monstrous crime has obtained of late and the ritual killing of infants that are annually sacrificed to Moloch to gratify an unlawful passion are a sufficient justification for our alluding to a painful and delicate subject which should not even be named, but only to correct and admonish the wrongdoers. Back then, to even consider the word abortion was considered a shame to have to mention such a crime publicly. They didn't even want to talk about it. I mean, it's sort of like whatever you think about, you know, pedophilia or something today. You don't want to talk about that. It's considered shameful. It's considered dirty. And yet now our country not only is comfortable talking about it, but is encouraging us to do it at any stage of life. How far we have fallen as a country. We have no concept. This was considered a deep shame that our country would even look at these things, consider these things, talk about these things in public, and now that's all we talk about. Let 
We're no different than the Tower of Babel. We're still trying to pursue all the blessings of heaven, but without God. And it only leads to death. And as a result, God will cause it all to come crashing down. The tower cannot stand. But how many more children have to die before we come to our senses? I mean, we, we thought we got somewhere with the latest Supreme Court ruling, and then our state just makes it all the worse. But, but I, I want to end, end with this. This is not simply a political issue. A lot of people try to say that it is. It's not. Primarily, it's a gospel issue. And what I mean by that is this. It's not just the days of our youth that need to be redeemed by God, but even our very conception in the womb of our mothers. Christ came to save us from our sin. That not just includes the sins of our toddler years, but the very person that we are, we are a sinner. Christ had to be conceived in the womb of His mother to live the whole life of Adam that Adam didn't live, that we didn't live. He had to save us by coming into the womb of His mother through a miraculous nature, an embryonic stage. Because even our embryonic stage needs to be redeemed. It's the Gospel. You take away life in the womb, you've taken away the very foundation of the Gospel of Christ. I firmly believe that. But then in addition, it's also an issue of God's law, particularly the law of love. We're called not only to love God with all of our hearts, we're also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as lawyers, we will try to do the same thing that the lawyer in the Scripture did and say, well, who is my neighbor? And I, I can say to you with 100% confidence, your neighbor is also someone still living in the womb of its mother. That's your neighbor. We're called to love them. We're called to protect them. We're called to pray for them. We, do we not pray for pregnant women? Do we not pray for those? in the, What are we praying for? Just a blob of tissue? Or are we praying for a person? We're praying for them. Because we know that it's a person. But that same law, and I, I want to finish with this, is the same law also calls us to love the abortionist who hates us for saying these things. To love the mother who has, in a great grief, has chosen to end her pregnancy. To show her the same love of Christ, the same mercy that's given to us in Christ, that for any sin covers over a multitude of sins. And to love in a way that we, we don't know how. God calls us to that in the law of God. We're not, we're not to enter into the, the arena of politics in, in the way many conservatives do in that very hateful spirit that they do it in. We're still called to love. Love our neighbor. Even love our enemy. So I, just, I want you to consider these things as we prayerfully consider the days ahead in our country and ask the Lord to lead us in the right way. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would again um, help us to, to really meditate upon your word. All the passages that I mentioned, that we would not treat them lightly, that we would not seek to make them go away. Lord, bring full conviction, uh, not just for the sake of saying, oh, we're right, and, and now we got the right argument. That's, that's not the desire, Lord. I pray that you instead help us to think through every aspect of life from a biblical perspective, that we would love your word, 
that we would love your will, we would love your holy laws because we love your gospel, Lord. Work these things in our hearts. Make us effective in how we apply them, we pray in Christ.